Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. As we get started this morning, I have a thank you note um, from Martin Canopper. He'd like us like to read to, to the class. As you know, um, we had the memorial for his wife last week. Um, I wanted to thank our Sabbath school class members for the great outpouring of love and support given to my family and me during the illness and death of my wife, Antoinette, and for preparing a wonderful dinner after the memorial service last Sabbath. Many times I have felt that your prayers have carried me into the very presence of God. Yes, the house is empty and I feel alone without her, but we are given a blessed hope that directs our attention to our eternal future. Someday we will all be together, never to be parted again. Martin. And I do want to thank the class members who participated. A lot of people really poured out a lot of support last week in preparing, preparing and helping with the meal for the family last week. And thank you all for that. Let's go ahead and uh, begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity together and study your word. We thank you for the beautiful weather we have today. Pray that your spirit and your angels will join us as we glorify you today, as we seek to understand and see and experience your love more fully, we pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly Loved and Loving John's Epistles. And the title of the lesson this week is Loving Brothers and sisters. And if someone would read that the first story there, right in the beginning of our lesson, beginning, a pastor was. A pastor was visited by a woman who hated toward her husband. Not only did she want to divorce him, but she wanted to cause him as much pain as possible. The pastor suggested that she go home and act as if she really loved him. She was to tell him how much he meant to her and to be as kind as she could. And after having convinced him of her undying love, she would then inform him about wanting a divorce. That would, all be that would all but guarantee hurting him as much as possible. So with revenge in her eyes, she did just that, lavishing love on him for a few months as she never had done before. And then the pastor called her and asked about the divorce. No way, she replied. I discovered I really do love him. That's good. My question, what do you think about the pastor's advice? Go home and treat him like you've never treated him before with love, and then once he's really heart deeply won over to you, then divorce him. You'll hurt him as much as possible. What do you... What do you think about the pastor's advice? Maybe he really knew what was going to happen. Right. I the pastor really thought that was going to happen. So you all think this pastor had a vision into the future. He's got some pr- prophetic uh, insight. He had a crystal ball. He, was, he, uh, he, had the, he had an angel visit him and gave him, uh, gave him the, the, the knowledge of the future events. You all, you all believe that? No, he knew human nature. Oh, okay. So, so uh, was there a guarantee it was going to turn out this way? No. What do you think would have happened? Do you think the pastor's motive was a good motive? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I do too. He wanted to save the marriage, yeah. Um, what do you think would have happened if it would have turned out differently? She'd have done just what the pastor said and then divorced him and then told everybody what the pastor told her to do. <laughs> what do you think would have happened then? Did the pastor take risks in giving this advice? Yes. Could the pastor's reputation potentially have been hurt? Do you know what my pastor told me to do? He told me to do this, and I didn't. Oh, my husband, I hurt him so bad. You know, pastors know really how to hurt people. <laughs> Does God take risks like this? Yes. Instructing people to do things with the intent and design to bring healing, but maybe people don't follow through as God designed, and, and there's risks involved because of the free will of people. Does that happen? 
Yes. Can you think of any examples in the Bible where God gave some instructions that could have been misunderstood? Like the pastors. When he said to Moses, I'm going to wipe out the people and start over with you. Remember that. Does anybody really think God was planning on wiping those people out? And he was only begged off by Moses? Or did God know Moses' heart before he said a thing and knew the future and knew what Moses was going to do? So there was never an intent on God's heart to kill the people. So then why would he do it? Why would he say it? He wanted the same thing for Moses that he wanted for Abraham. He wanted Moses to understand the kind of love that he himself had. Okay, I, I, I like that. wanted Moses to understand the love uh, uh, that God has. How about, were there other beings watching? What was happening? Who was watching? The universe was watching. And, and what, what did Moses demonstrate as far as uh, his character 40 years earlier? Yeah, what did he do 40 years earlier? He murdered an overseer. And the universe is going, uh, this is how your people act? Wow, I'm not so sure about them. And God says, hey, look, that's Moses' heart before he spent 40 years with me. The last 40 years he spent with me, I'm going to show you, there's something has changed in Moses. So much so that even when I am telling him that I'm going to do this and start over with him, what inducements could you have, see? He won't take it. He'd give his life now to protect other people. That's how my methods work. My methods change and heal and restore. And you see this happening all through. How about, mentioned Abraham. Abraham and Mount Moriah. Go kill your son. Could it be misunderstood? Could people misunderstand? In fact, people still misunderstand that. I hear preachers taking that story and showing it as an example of how God killed his son. Because they still misunderstand. Uh, the ten plagues of Egypt. There are plenty of places where God has done things and people have misunderstood. Let's jump to, and we're going to jump around this week because there's, um, we probably won't get through it all and I just decided we'd go through the stuff that maybe would be more interesting first. And let's jump to Thursday's lesson. The first sentence states, talking about 1 John 3 and uh, 21 through 24 and 1 John 4, 21, it says the first sentence states, both passages that we have studied this week end with a reference to the commandments. And then the lesson asks, what do the passages teach about the commandments apart from that they should be kept? And if you turn to your Bibles, we should at least look at a couple of those passages. 1 John 3, 21 through 24, because the question I have is, are these passages talking about the commandments? And some versions may read like this. Dear friends, in our hearts, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commandments live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. And then 1 John 4.21, He has given us this commandment. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, are these passages, remember the question from the uh, lesson, it says both passages we have studied this week end with references to the commandments. What do the passages teach us about the commandments apart from that they should be kept? Now, what are the questions tending to direct your mind toward? The Ten Commandments. Do you, do you think that's what these passages are actually talking about? 
What are the passages talking about? Is it talking about love? Can love be commanded? Can you say to someone, I command you to love me and legitimately expect that to work? No. Anybody unsure about that? Can what God wants from us be commanded from us? Can he command from us what he wants? You know, if so, some people believe he can. That's what he's doing. I command you. I give you the commandments. Uh, obey my commandments. He's commanding, and it's our duty to, to respond. Some people believe that what God wants can be commanded. If it could be commanded, then why, when Lucifer started his rebellion in heaven, didn't God just simply stand up and command obedience? If it could be commanded. Well, this is out of a book some of you may have heard of called Desire of Ages, page 759. It says, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one casts a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. What's compelling power? Isn't that commanding power? I command you, I order you, I direct you. Isn't that what what compelling power is? Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests on goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. What are the prevailing power in God's government? Truth and love. Can Can you command truth and love? No. So what happens if we were to take the commandment word and change it, as the NIV has, to command? Any significant change there? How about if we change it from command to directive? Or if we change it from directive to direction? Are we moving away from the meaning? Or how about we finally change it to prescription? And we read it. Therefore, my friends, if our hearts and minds have been healed and no longer condemn us, we are no longer afraid of God and will follow his prescription and do the things that please him. And this is his prescription to value, cherish and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, and to be like him, loving one another as he has prescribed. Those who take his prescription live in oneness with him and his character of love and he is in unity with them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. His spirit dwells in us and heals us to be like him. And 421, God's prescription is this. Internalize God's love which transforms the entire being so we love both God and man. So whoever loves God will also love others. I like that because if you give somebody a prescription, they don't have to get it filled. But they go and get it filled from the pharmacist, Jesus Christ, and it's the fulfillment of the law, the love that Christ gave them. I like that. What do you all think? Does a connotation work? God is prescribing something for us, but yet he's not commanding as in a coercive power. It's a direction. And it makes it all voluntary. And is it voluntary? Yes. Yes. It's helpful to me to understand the context. And this is First John 3 and 4 surely echoes the last several chapters of the Gospel of John. Sure. And uh, definitely the same message. And over and over, I mean, Jesus is talking to this group of people that he knows loved him with all their hearts, and and hopefully he's, uh, in First John, we're talking about the same group of people that he's addressing, those that, that love God, and the message is, love me, 
Um, if we have this relationship going, this is what you'll do. You'll, you'll do what I'm asking you to do because I know how it's going to change your life. And so for me, it doesn't matter whether you say command or prescription or whatever because if I already love him, I'll, I'll take whatever instruction, however he wants to pray it, because I want to do what he knows is best for me. So the context to me takes the command issue out of it. What do you all think? I think if you understand it that way, that's beautiful. And I, I would agree completely. When, when we love him and he gives us a directive, a command, a prescription, we understand it correctly that he's not coercive, he's not com- controlling, he's not threatening. But when we use just the command language, can we then infer misunderstanding that really isn't there if we don't have that whole context that you're putting it in? Does that happen in Christianity? Yeah, and we draw wrong conclusions that we're under threat if we don't. If your doctor gives you a directive, a instruction, a prescription, a command to do certain things, and you don't do it, is your doctor threatening to kill you if you don't? No. You see? No. Yes, way in the back. How would you apply what you're talking about to Jonah? Was he commanded or was he asked? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think Jonah was chosen purposely by God for the fulfillment of the people that he was going to. God knew Jonah was, was prejudiced and bigoted and, and hated the Assyrians and wanted them to die and would resist his directive and instruction for this mission. Now notice he didn't give Jonah the command, love me. That wasn't the command he gave him. He gave him the command, go and send a message for me, which is a different type of a command. And he knew Jonah would resist it, because God has foreknowledge, doesn't he? Yes. And Jonah took off, and and, and you put it all in the context, he took off into the sea, and he jumped in, and a great fish came, right? And the fish swam to shore and eventually hurled up Jonah onto onto the seashore there. Now, which people was he going to? The people of Nineveh. Which god did the people of Nineveh worship? Dagon, the fish god. Now, do you think it's really accidental that a fish barfed up the guy that's going to give them the message to repent when they worship a fish god? <laughs> you see, I think that God chose Jonah in that context with the knowledge that it was going to work out perfectly for reaching this people that he wanted to reach. Isn't that beautiful? Excuse me, God could have chosen another prophet. He absolutely could have chosen another prophet. As concerned with Jonah's salvation as he was with people. That's right. And he had a, a, a wonderful lesson to bring Jonah in and break down his prejudices as well. The second paragraph in Thursday's lesson begins, John says, somebody read that for us. John says that keeping God's commandments and doing what pleases him, 1 John three twenty two, give Christians confidence that God hears their prayers. God's command is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. And keeping the commandments allow for mutual abiding. We in God and God in us. The love of God includes keeping the commandments, and indeed, they can be kept because they are not burdensome. What do you think about this idea that keeping God's commandments and doing what pleases Him gives Christians confidence that God hears their prayers? If I do all the right rules and keep all the right regulations then God will hear me. If I don't keep the rules, he won't listen. Have you ever heard the one about the guardian angels won't follow you into the movie theater? You've heard that one. You're not obeying. They can't send his angels to protect you. I see some heads nodding. Yes, this is kind of along the same lines, right? Anybody know the story of Esther? Mordecai. 
where did that where where were they in in the world geographically? Okay, yeah, they were in in Persia. Okay, and um, Iran today. Where at that time in history were the Jews supposed to be according to God's will? Was this before or after the release of the captivity? After. After the release. God had, had the command had come. They were released from the 70 years. They were to, in God's instruction to go back to Israel and restore Israel. Yet Mordecai and Esther and a whole bunch of Jews didn't want to go back. They stayed where they weren't supposed to be, according to God's will. Did God abandon them there? Or did he send his agency still to help and protect? Do we have some ideas sometimes that, that make God out to look ugly and twisted. God never abandons us. We abandon him. God never leaves us. We leave him. As soon as Adam sinned, who was running away? And who was running toward? Okay, God has always been coming toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's always reaching out to us. Who wants us to think that, that God is somehow distant, aloof, disinterested, and we've got to do something to get his attention and get him to be interested? This is a distortion. It's pagan. Wendell. It's also interesting to note that the people who were doing what God told them to do, those back in Jerusalem, the pioneers that returned, were protected by the heathen who had stayed in, in, ba- in Babylon. I mean, the decree was was universal. Yes. And so even those people in Jerusalem who were doing what they're supposed to be told would have been killed if it hadn't been... For Esther and Mordecai. For Esther and Mordecai back in, in Persia. Let's go jump to Tuesday's lesson. Somebody read 1 John 3, 19 through 22, please. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is how we will be confident in God's presence. If our conscience condemns us, we know that God is greater than our conscience and that he knows everything. And so, my dear friends, if our conscience does not condemn us, we have courage in God's presence. We receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commands and do what he pleases him. And then in the first paragraph it says, What Christian at some point, looking at themselves, at their weakness, at their lack of love, at their shortcomings, have not felt condemned, guilty, and even lost? How important to remember that God is greater than we are, greater than our guilt, greater than our hearts. How crucial that we realize day by day that our hope of salvation must rest on Jesus and his work on our behalf. Only by leaning on him and his merits and not our own can we have confidence and assurance. And as we put those two things together and read that, the question, where does condemnation Arise From where does condemnation arise? Does condemnation come from God? No. Do you know you are in the minority amongst Christians? That God sits in judgment and condemns the wicked is commonly taught, isn't it? When Adam sinned, why did he run away? Fear. Did he have objective reasons to fear God? Was God his enemy? Was God out to get him? Was God out to hurt him? Was God seeking to punish him, to condemn him, to to chastise him, to to hurt him in any way? No, God was his friend seeking to redeem and save, yet he's running. Why, Why is he running? Remember the conversation. Adam, where are you? 
I ran and hid because I was naked and afraid. Well, Adam, who told you that you were naked? What's the options here for Adam? Eve or? Yeah, but what's implied in the question? If God is saying, who told you, isn't implied in the question, Adam? You didn't hear that from me. I didn't point out your nakedness. I haven't uh, criticized uh, uh, anything going on with you. That's coming from your own conscience, Adam. That's not coming from me. You see, when we step outside of the law of love, the normal brain response is guilt and conviction and shame and inadequacy and condemnation. That's how our brains respond to being outside of God's law of love. God doesn't do that to us. Just like when I I, I treat soldiers who go into combat, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is the normal response to the abnormal situation of combat. Combat is abnormal. The human brain was not designed for combat. And so the normal response to combat is the stress disorder and the breakdown of normal well-being that happens when you're in a high-stress combat situation and killing each other. Likewise, this this shame and guilt and, and stress and fear and worry is the normal response for when we step outside of the law of love, which is what Adam did. Many people believe God sits in judgment and God condemns the wicked. Have you not heard that? Let me walk you through this, this metaphor. I want you to imagine that you assess an engine that is running without oil. And you hear it squealing and grinding and preparing to seize up. And you make a judgment about the problem. You diagnose the issue. You say, this engine, if something isn't done, is going to die. It's going to seize up. It's going to break down. You make that judgment. Is your conclusion, is your judgment causing the problem in the ed- engine? Is it inflicting the outcome upon the engine? No. Is your conclusion, a, in a certain way, a recognition that this engine, if something isn't done, is condemned? Isn't that right? Yes. Now, is the problem that the engine needs to get a substitute engine for you to look at and assess, to stand in its place that's running well? And then as you look at the substitute engine, you'll say, this engine runs perfectly, therefore I will impute to the other engine perfection. I will ignore the defects in the other engine because I see this engine running perfectly. Are you following the point I'm making here? This is what's commonly taught. That the father looks at his son and his son acts like a wonderful heavenly smokescreen that obstructs the father's awareness of the defects in us. What would be the solution for the engine with no oil? Fix it, right? Our solution is, this is the Bible's teaching. What does the Bible teach as our solution? That through Christ we get a new heart and a right spirit. The law gets written on the the fleshly tablets of the heart. Put my law in your hearts and minds. We get the stony heart removed, the heart of flesh put in. We get circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. We get the mind of Christ. I mean, the whole teaching of Scriptures, through Christ, we get regeneration, recreation, renewal. We get fixed. We get fixed. Is that not good news? Yes. Isn't that better news than, well, we get legal pardon in a record book, but we're still just as rotten to the core. Thoughts about that? In your illustration, the driver will know when his defective engine 
is running perfectly well by comparing it to the one that he knows is already running well. Yes. So then he can make that judgment that, oh, now it's, it's a great engine, it's perfectly running because I have something to compare it to. That, I like that. That's well. And, and, of course, all metaphors have their limitation, so you can't take it too far. But, but I think you get the point. That when God looks at us and sees us defective, sees us on a path of sinful living and self-destruction, that his judgment of our condition doesn't cause the condition, doesn't impose it upon us. It's a recognition that without intervention, without the Spirit's regenerating power in our life, the ultimate outcome, as it says, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We are on a path of eternal demise, save God's grace, restoration, and healing of our lives. God's judgment of that outcome for those who refuse Him doesn't inflict it or cause it. Is that not right? Yeah. All right, Wednesday's lesson. First paragraph. Somebody read that for us. It says, John is not... John is not content to theorize about love. He lets us know that God wants us to put love into practice. Therefore, he states that hate is incompatible with a loving attitude, and it is even a form of murder. He says, too, that we should not love with words alone, but but with actions. Does that remind you of Jesus' words at all? You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. I mean, the same, same principle being taught. What happens in the character, in the brain, in the neural circuits of somebody who hates their brother in their heart? Do you know? Is there any difference between the brain wiring of somebody who hates and somebody who murders? Or does the character become the same? Now, while you may have different consequences here on earth for carrying it out, in the brain, in the character... That hatred, that resentment, actually hardens the heart, sears the conscience, warps the reason, and you become in heart like a murderer. That's what he's trying to say. And then the third paragraph in the lesson. However, John is opposed to a superficial declaration of love with no strings attached. In 1 John 3.17, he describes a situation similar to the one found in James. A church member is in need. Others have the means to help him or her, but do nothing about it other than say some nice things to that person. That's not enough. God not only informed us that he loves us, he sent his son to die in our place. People who love much do much because real love is active. Let's talk about that. Let's take the obvious, the obvious acts of love. How does love act? Minister to those who are sick? Help people in famine? Rescue people who are being persecuted, tortured, genocide? Protect people from exploitation and abuse. Use the resources one has to help the welfare of another. Speak kind and encouraging words. Putting self in harm's way to rescue somebody. I mean, we all agree these are all acts of love, yes? These are the obvious ones. Let's talk the less obvious. Your son has drug problems and isn't paying his utility bills and electricity is about to be turned off. What does love do? Yes. Have to be careful not to enable that person to continue. So, what does love do? Pay the money to turn the keep the power on, or let the power go off. And how about if he has two kids under the age of five in that home? What does love do? If you pay for the power each month, what's gonna what's he gonna be using his money for? Oh, you, don't, you think I'm making this up? Oh, I see this all the time. All the time. How about this one? 
Your son is in prison for the sixth time for drugs, stealing, fraud, weapons, and each time incarcerated, you use your money to get lawyers to get him out. And each time he goes back to the same destructive lifestyle. Now he's in for the sixth time. What does love do? I'm not hearing anything. Should you get him out again or should he be left there if you love him? Left there, but you visit them. I like that. Okay. Left there, but you visit. Why would you want to leave him there? When your child is five and has a temper tantrum, what's often a parental intervention? Time out. What is a time out? Incarceration. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. For adults, adult time out is incarceration. That's exactly what it is. No, it's, I'm not kidding. When people are so out of control and bent on self-destruction, destroying themselves, having these, these dysfunctional living that they hurt themselves and others around them, society takes them out of society and puts them in time out where they have time to contemplate and reflect and maybe detox their brain from the drugs that are distorting all their thinking and get time to reassess and rethink and then later give them another chance to see if they can do better. And if they do, they get to stay out of time out. If they don't, they go back in time out. Isn't that right? And is the purpose of time out primary? Now, I know some people in society, the purpose is to punish. But can't time out be for redemption? Didn't Christ say to visit those in prison? Those in prison, just because they're in prison on earth, does that mean they're lost? No. No. Prison might be the very best place for some people that have no capacity for self-governance. They need that structure to keep themselves from destroying themselves. And there they may find Christ where they would not find Him while they're high on drugs all day long. We have to look at a larger view. Love sometimes is difficult in this world, isn't it? How about this one? An alcoholic living on the street asks you for money in the parking lot outside Walmart. How do you know he's an alcoholic? Um... The, the smell? Uh, has anybody dealt with alcoholics besides me? Well, yeah. Can you tell? I, I've had people say, you know, don't give money to those people on the street. They, you know, they're not hungry. They do it for a living and da da da. Well, if you do that, I feel I. It's up to them what they do with it. I have done what I felt like I should do that day. That's why I was asking you, how did you know it was not? Yeah, over here. What I've done in the past is, uh, I say, what do you want the money for? Are you hungry? I'll take them to go get something to eat. Right. And I'm there okay. with them, and we eat. So yeah. Sure where what about those signs, we'll work for food? <laughs> do you know those are ni- almost always, 99.999% of the time, a scam? Yes. They won't work for food. Say, i got some weeds in my garden. You come weed my garden for an hour, I'll give you a meal. They'll always turn you down. <laughs> they don't want to work for food. Some of those guys have been reported to make $100,000 in six weeks from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Standing on the corner. Except the judgment that or what Well, there's truth in what she's saying. Those people who cheat will have to accept, accept the searing of their conscience and the consequences that come from it. But do we have responsibility to prudently use the resources God given, has given us and not just blindly throw it out there to people who are scammers? Do you know what? We have to ask the question, what, what society do we live in? Do you understand in this community there is so many resources available for people that if people are actually out there like that, they're there by choice. We have the Samaritan Center. We have Goodwill. We have Salvation Army. We have the Catholic Charities. We have Red Cross. Those are all non-government agencies. Then we have food stamps. We have Medicaid. We have Medicare. We have all these programs in place to help people. 
But now let's take it closer to home. Let's take it in the church. What if you have a family in the church, and the husband and wife are unemployed and have two small children? You own a business. You offer the wife a job cooking in the business. Well, God directs that the woman should be at home taking care of her children. She cannot do that and leave her children unattended. How can she do that? So, so they draw from the church. They come to the church and get money from the church because they're in need. Well, then we should use the scripture advice, right? 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Those who will not work shall not eat. <laughs> That's the scripture. I'm with you on that. But yes. Those who will not work <laughs> shall not eat. And that is, of course, talking about people who have the capacity to work. It's not talking about you know, Christopher Reeves and his quadriplegia. Okay? It's not talking about people who have genuine incapacities. It's talking about people who have the ability, but choose instead to shift their responsibility to others to carry for them. Now, what about this one? Maybe this one's a little harder. A family member who has a disability asks you to help them with activities that they could do for themselves, but it would be significantly more difficult for them to do it than it used to be before the, diffi- before the disability. What does love do? Do you do it for them, or do you say no? Yes. Pardon? You will do it with them and have to bring them to improve because most disabilities will occupy working. If you just have them doing everything for them, they're going to go work. Example, ask you to vacuum their house because they have a pain condition that makes it very difficult to vacuum the house. Um, maybe their back hurts, and they can only do it in five-minute increments. Should you do the vacuuming for them, or should you let them do it? (laughs) See, there is a principle here. There is a principle here. And it goes to integrity, it goes to well-being, it goes to infantilizing someone. Our responsibility is to move people towards the highest level of functioning possible within their capacity. That's what we want. As parents, do we want our children to be infantilized, or do we want them to develop to the highest level of their capacity? Isn't that true for all of our loved ones and friends and family? The highest level of development possible within their ability. And so if we do things, for instance, your child's a toddler, and it's time for him to learn to walk, but you don't want to see him scrape his knee and get hurt because you, it just pains your heart to see them suffer with pain. And so you carry them in your arms and never put them down. Will you help that child by protecting him from hurt, or will you cripple him? You see, this is a principle that applies throughout life. That if we do things for people who have the capacity to do it for themselves consistently, we cripple them, we infantilize them. They lose capacities over time. So the goal is to assist them in recovering their abilities, not doing it for them. This is true for mental capacities as well. If you were in school taking math, would you prefer a teacher who, when you were struggling with a problem, just came up and said, oh, that's 37, that's 24, that's 16? and just give you the answer every time, or do you need to be left to struggle with the problem and make mistakes? And then, and then as they walk through where the mistakes are made, leave you to struggle some more. Just doing it for people does not help growth. Yes? There's huge value in what you're saying uh, as we support those around us. A balancing statement uh, to... to guard against using that as an unfortunate and misguided cop-out is that in these passages that we're looking at in the Bible, 
It's about me. It's not about the person that I'm helping. The message is, is that people will be able to tell whether we love Jesus. How will they be able to tell? Because of how we love one another. It's about my ability to show Jesus' love in the context of my of my my fam- my extended family. That's to me. That's the first message. And there's certainly balance involved, but so often I find myself looking for ways to justify not helping because, well, they can probably do it, or there's another agency that can do it. Well, that's not the point. The point is, is I need to do something to change me from the inside out so that I can become like Jesus. I like what you're saying because the issue is one of changing us. The question is, do we make actions because we're concerned about whether we will be seen as loving, and so we do it, or do we do something that's actually loving, knowing that maybe the majority of people will think we're hard-hearted? Did God in the Old Testament thunder at Sinai? Did he do many things? I mean, are anybody going to say any action God has taken has not been in harmony with his character of love? Or is everything God done harmony with his character of love? Yet, has he done things that have been very difficult for some people to get their mind around as loving? How can that be loving? When we love people like the, the pastor in our first story, he was taking an action of love to help these people that he thought best in the circumstance, but it could have gone terribly awry and he could have been misjudged. Sometimes the most loving course of action, and it comes from the heart motive, I'm doing this because I love you, that's why I'm not doing this for you. At some point do parents, and I've got patients who parent, who have kids that are 35 years of age, who've never left the home, never gotten a job, still live in the house, and the parents still provide for them. And they're not in any way incapacitated physically or mentally. They just are lazy. Is the parent loving that child by just continuing to do that? Or is the loving action to say, you're out of here? (laughs) Because it's, it's destroying character to do this. It's a very difficult balancing act, and I appreciate your point. Yes. I was just reading one of Ty Gibson's books a couple of days ago. He made the comment that often when we love, when we do acts of love, ultimately what we're doing is loving ourselves through those acts to other people rather than going to the effort to think it through, the effort to take the time, as that young man said, to take them to a meal. That is so much harder than handing them $25 and getting out of the parking lot or smile, but you really want to love you and give something back to you. Ultimately, if we're not putting the time and energy to make the hard choices, we're ultimately really loving ourselves. We're really ultimately still self-centered rather than other-centered. So you're saying that handing 5 or $10 to someone in the parking lot because allows us to believe that we're loving them so we can go away feeling good about ourselves. It's really not about them at all. It's about us. We can go home and feel not stressed out about that person. Yes, and if we don't give the $5, then we feel guilty that we should help them. It's still all about us. <laughs> yes. It's the easy way. It's the easy way out, and God never takes the easy way out. It's a hard way, and it's a tough way, especially when you're dealing with children. The easy way out, oh, it's okay. But later on... I have uh, uh, parents that come to see me with unruly adolescents, and as I take the history of the dynamics in the home, it's often, I remember one father telling me, I said, do you discipline your son? Well, he never disciplined his son without his son's permission. (laughs) (laughs) this, This is how it worked. This is how you'd say it. You won't be mad at daddy if he puts you in time out, will you? 
Well, was he loving his son? No, it was all about himself. He needed his son to value him so he could feel good about a dad, his dad. Well, if my son's mad at me, well, then I'm a bad daddy. I keep my son happy with me. Is this love? No, this is twisted. Yeah, love risks being misunderstood to do what's right for the other person and sacrifices self for the benefit of the other person. Let's go on to Sunday's lesson. Last paragraph says the following. 1 John 4, 7 through 5, 4 must also be understood in the context of the Antichrist who were wrong in their ideas about Jesus. The passage says that Jesus is the Son of God and the, and the Christ and became the atoning sacrifice for us, our sins and the Savior of the world. Only through Him and what He did for us can the love of God be understood in a deeper sense. That is, only as we understand what happened at the cross and how Christ bore in Himself the punishment for our sins can we come to love God as we should. Would you all agree that the cross is the central experience, evidence, event in universal history? Central to God's plan, God's character, God's redemptive plan. It's central. Do you think Satan knows that? Do you think Satan has ignored it or has spent lots of energy on misrepresenting the cross? It's a central point of Satan's attack. The cross is not something that's ignored by Satan. He has his own theories that are constantly being promulgated about the cross. People go out promoting Satan's version of the cross all the time. Do you know what it looks like? How do you hear atoning sacrifice, which is in the passage? Some say propitiation, by the way. Yes. Jesus had to die to appease. Jesus had to die to appease. This is how Satan has twisted it. Satan's twisting of what Christ did is the atonement is appeasement, propitiation, working on the Father. Let me give you some, let me give you some statements. This is out of a 1999 article published in Christianity Today called A Call for Evangelical Unity. Just giving you an excerpt here. And it says, Jesus paid our penalty in our place on his cross, satisfying the retributive demands of divine justice by shedding his blood in a sacrifice and so making possible justification for all who trust him. We affirm that the, cro- that the atonement of Christ by which, in his obedience, he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on our behalf according to God's eternal plan, is an essential element of the gospel. We deny that any view of the atonement that rejects the substitutionary satisfaction of divine justice accomplished vicariously for believers is compatible with the teaching of the gospel. This is Christianity. This is the heart of Christianity. I'm going to tell you, it is the heart of the wine of Babylon that is intoxicating the nations. This is the lie of Satan. And it's been accepted and drunk by Babylon and all the fallen little sister Babylons, and it's infected our church and our thinking. What does the scripture say about atonement? What did Jesus say about atonement? Well, what do they do with John 3.16? Everybody says, you know, the Father's ready to take us out. I mean, God loved us, just He loves us just as much as the Son. And Jesus, the atonement I look at is the one that the only way Christ could bring divinity to humanity for eternity and put it into one is through atonement or at one. You know, so he just changed the word. Atonement at one meant. 
unity, oneness. That's what atonement is. Christ achieved reconciliation, oneing, putting the humanity back in oneness or unity or harmony with the Godhead. That's what atonement is. Harmony, unity, oneness. Jesus prayed for it in John 17, verse 11 and then verse 21 through 23. But they are still in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And then Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, the mystery of God. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. This is what Christ came to fulfill. To put into effect, when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Jesus Christ. What is that? Unity. Oneness. Harmony. Reconciliation. Bringing us all back to one heart, mind, purpose, method. The law of love. In the heart again. This is what he's talking about. This is at one minute. This is what the cross was to achieve. The perversion is this idea of, what does it say? Propitiating the Father. You see, if Christ is propitiating the Father, then are they at one? Or is one member working on the other one to persuade and influence? Do you see the subtle introduction of distortion? Let me read to you something from Desire of Ages, page 761, and let you notice Satan's position from the inception of the great controversy, how he presents this. This is Satan's position. This is page 761, Desire of Ages. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Now get this. Every sin must meet its punishment urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Satan's position that divine justice requires retributive payment and and, and a death penalty to pay that thing off because sin must be punished. Satan's lie. Christ came not to be be a punishment to pay the Father and, and, and assuage wrath and propitiate anger. He came to reconcile mankind and put the law of love back into our hearts and make us one with him again. To heal us, to restore us, to regenerate us. Tim, why did that require his death? Exactly. Why would it require his death? Yes. What is the basis of all life in the universe? Giving. Love. Giving. Same thing. The law of love emanates from God. God is love. When he went to create, he created, designed all the universe to operate in harmony. I'm going to answer your question. This goes directly to your question of why he had to die. Because you have to first understand why death comes. And in order to understand why death comes, you have to understand what the basis of life is. Life is based on harmony with the law of love. Ellen White says in many places, I don't have all the quotes with me today, but she says in numerous places, the law of love is the law of life for the universe. It is the principle of life that all life is created to operate upon. Perfect harmony with the law of love brings life. The psalm says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, brings life to the soul, because it's the law of love. It's the law of life. Don't have time to go through all the examples today. We've gone through before. But when the law of love is broken, like breaking the law of respiration, if I tie a plastic bag over your head, why will you die? 
because the law of respiration, it's a law. If you don't breathe, you die. If you're not in harmony with the law of love, you die. The wages of sin is death. This is why death came. As soon as Adam sinned, he changed his nature. He's no longer in harmony with the principle of life. Love is no longer the rule of his nature. What became the rule of his nature? And in the world today, it's known as survival of the fittest. Me first, you second. That's the law of our nature. We watch out for number one first and we'll kill others to do so to save self. In Christ, why did he have to die? Because the law of love had to destroy the law of sin and death. And in Christ Jesus, he's this unique being, this God-man. Adam came out of the dust of the ground, perfect and sinless. Eve came from his side. Did you and I come into the world that way? No. No, we came from a sinful mother and a sinful father, right? How about Jesus' humanity? Was Jesus' humanity made out of the dust? Sinless. Was it made out of the side of a sinless being? Like Eve. Did he come from sinful parents? Mother and father? No. He had a sinful mother, Mary, but his father was God. So in Jesus' humanity, now get this, it had to be his human brain because it says in James chapter 1, God cannot be tempted by evil. So his divinity could not be tempted. But Jesus, Hebrews 4.15, was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And James chapter 1 says we are tempted by our own evil desires. So Jesus Christ took our condition upon himself, the capacity to experience internal temptation, to act in self-interest. But unlike us, his mind was in perfect harmony with the law of love that his Father's universe runs on. So in Jesus' humanity, those two principles fought it out. And you can see it in Gethsemane. Was Jesus tempted with powerful emotions to act in self-interest? Did he give in to the emotions like we do, or did he overcome those emotions with love? Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. Why did it have to go all the way to death? Because unlike the helpless thieves on the cross, Christ wasn't helpless up there, was he? He had the power to stop it. If at any point along death's approach, Christ exercises his power to stop it, who did he save? And selfishness wins. The only way to destroy the infection of humanity, self-centeredness, was to give himself freely and perfectly in love. And this is why the grave could not hold him. Once he did that, he perfectly restored the law of love in humanity, and he was, he was inevitable that he would rise again because the law of love is the law of life. And he came forth now holding the keys of death and the grave, and he will set free all those who trust him because he puts the perfect law of love back in the heart, restoring us to unity with him. This is the gospel message. It is not this appeasement of his father. It was in, it was in, it says the father was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. Or in Romans chapter 8, it says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him get graciously give us all things? Who brings any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Notice, God is justifying, setting us right. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Notice what does the word also mean? Along with, or in addition to. In addition to who? God. God, notice, God is interceding on our behalf, He's on our side, and Christ is also working with Him. It's not this idea of Christ propitiating the Father, it's a lie. It's the Son is the conduit, the avenue, the representative, the agent, the vehicle through which the Father fulfills His purpose in healing and saving mankind. Does that answer the question, why He had to die? It's for me. I just have a little bit of 
problems and stuff like that. I mean, this is no idea to me. I'm not saying that I disagree with it, but with one of the beautiful teachings in the scriptures of the sanctuary, it's all throughout the scriptures, through the Psalms, through Hebrews, New and Old Testament, the sanctuary process with the high priest and everything else, you know. And it just seems to me that as Jesus being compared to the high priest, the high priest's role for the nation is to intercede to make, you know, atonement to speak out for for the nation and stuff. And also I think of times like when Moses was speaking out for the people uh, and talking with God and things like that. Um, our transgression of the law means death because wages of sin is death. So in a sense, I don't know. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, James chapter 1. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Galatians, those who reap to, uh, sow to the spirit from the spirit will reap life. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature will reap destruction. The scripture is clear that disharmony with God and his principles of love result in death. Only perfect harmony with God is compatible with life because it's the design for life. That's how life is constructed to operate. Now, the sanctuary question, you're right, is a beautiful metaphor that has been grossly misunderstood and misrepresented to teach appeasement, which it does not teach. There is evidences piled on evidences that I can give you from Scripture and inspired sources to, to back up what I'm about to say. If you want those, let's talk. The Old Testament sanctuary system is a metaphor for God's restoring of your heart and mind. That's what it is. And I'll give you some examples. In the old system, the lamb represents Christ, and the blood represents his life, right? And where did the blood get ministered? All through the system, right? John chapter 6, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, where does Jesus say that real, the real deal is to be applied? In the hearts and minds of people. In the old system, where was the law written by the finger of God kept? According to the new covenant, God's own words, Hebrews chapter 10 and 12, this is the covenant I will make with Israel after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and minds. The high priest was the one going around carrying out God's will of restoring God's perfect character, the blood of Christ, his life, into the hearts and minds of the believers, which are represented in the old system. And I could go on and on. The, the robes of righteousness are the white robes worn by who? The daily priest. We are the priesthood of believers in the new system. That's us. We carry that forward as we accept Christ and have Christ within, that we are ministering vessels carrying the blood, the truth about Christ to others, sharing it to others in the system. The holy place is the church. That's where the candlestick is. That's why in Revelation you see Christ walking among the candlesticks. He's walking among the seven churches because the holy place is the church where the word, the written word, is kept the light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. It's in the church. This, the, the, the showbread, this, the 12 loaves. Do you know what the 12 loaves represent? I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. It represents Christ. also represents the written word. Do you know only the priests, who are the believers, could eat that on Sabbath? Every Sabbath they joined together and they ate the bread in the holy place. Symbolically teaching that we come together on Sabbath in the church to eat the bread of life. This is what the whole system is teaching. I could go on and on. But the whole system is beautiful, but it doesn't teach anything about appeasement or expiation or propitiation or begging off the Father or any of that. It teaches that Christ came out from the Father's presence to lead us back to unity with the Father. That's what it teaches.
That's the whole message. And, and uh, boy, in closing from our Sunday's lesson, just uh, this whole business of propitiation, according to the dictionary of biblical languages with semantic domains, and the Greek translated atoning sacrifice or propitiation is the word helasmos, and it means forgiveness or depending on your version. uh, And I've got all this in the notes. It tells you which version uh, translated this way. One is atoning sacrifice, one's expiation, one's propitiation, uh, and another is the remedy for defilement. Well, I like that one very much. Yeah. And it says in the note, expiation focuses on the means for forgiveness of sin. Propitiation would focus on God's view of satisfaction or favorable disposing. And it says in the note in the dictionary, there is much debate which English word is better rendering. Yeah, there is. Much debate. In closing, and we're about out of time, I got this letter this week that I wanted to share with the class because it was addressed to you all. It came from one of our online listeners. It says, Dear Come and Reason class, I want to tell you how much I enjoy being a part of your class even though I am so far from there in Florida. I have come up in varied religious systems, all of whom put a high value on reporting the number of souls you have personally led to Christ. I used to be ashamed that my number was in fact a zero. But I had a lot of confusion in me, and I knew it. Too many things did not make sense for me alone, much less for me to share anything with anyone else. My first encounter with your class was through the Healing of the Mind seminar held at my church, in which the website address was given out. There were lots of valuable teachings given, um, but the most impact was when you asked, imagine two doors, behind one is the Father, behind the other is the Son, which do you go through? Inside, I wanted to answer the Father, but something kept me from saying it out loud. Instead, I sat silently watching as nearly the entire church said, the one with the Son. It took more than a year to digest that teaching alone. I finally recall when pondering the tabernacle temple that if I stood holding on to the curtain, never entering the most holy place, Christ may have died for me for nothing, so I decided to walk in. The teaching of the class has changed my life. I finally believe that I now know what the good news actually is enough that I can finally begin to share it. Once ashamed, now thankful that God gave me the gift of silence until such time I would no longer be sharing a lie, but would be sharing the truth, an enormous blessing. Continue doing what God has gifted you all to do. You guys should start a Facebook page. It would be neat to actually put faces to voices. Your sisters in Christ, Linda Cowart Hunter, Orlando, Florida. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have loved us so much that when we believed the lies and severed our connection with you, you didn't abandon us, you didn't turn on us, you didn't become angry and and seek to punish us and, and need someone to beg you off to be kind, but you so loved us that you sent your Son to be your representative on earth, to accomplish your purpose for mankind, which is perfect restoration and unity to oneness with you, putting us back in the perfect design template that you created mankind and Adam to be. Lord, may the lies be removed and we see you more clearly. May we cooperate with you to experience your healing, your regeneration, and then take this true gospel message, the truth about your character of love to the world, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.